Hello and welcome to the first edition of the Faber Podcast for 2013. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is award-winning journalist and biographer Neil McKenna. Neil is the author of the best-selling The Secret Life of Oscar Wilde, a groundbreaking account of Wilde's sexuality and work, which won widespread acclaim in Britain and the United States. And now he's published Fanny and Stella, an account of the lives and loves of two effeminate, cross-dressing young men whom Victorian society found every bit as shocking as Oscar Wilde. Like Wilde, Fanny and Stella found themselves on trial for the way they lived. And, Neil McKenna argues, like Wilde's trial a quarter of a century later, the trial of Fanny and Stella was a landmark in terms of attitudes to gender, sexuality and identity. Lest that sound too solemn, Neil's book has already had a lead review in the Sunday Times in which Dominic Sandbrook wrote... This rollicking account of the trial of two middle-class cross-dressers unveils one of the most extraordinary legal dramas of the Victorian age. McKenna has done a tremendous job of recreating Victorian London's gay subculture, weaving newspaper reports, police documents and contemporary diaries into a jolly and rollicking narrative. Fanny and Stella is a cracking read. And Catherine Hughes in The Guardian said, What makes this book such a startling read is the way that McKenna recreates the effective world of Stella, Fanny and their sisters, a loose cohort of half a dozen young gay men. Extrapolating from their letters, McKenna plunges us into a world of lush longing for embroidered handkerchiefs, soft kisses and husbands with titles. Neil is excellent in his recreation of Fanny and Stella's world of theatre and burlesque, of houses of accommodation and clandestine assignations. He says of the pair, Many, if not most, of those who encountered them thought they were either whores or actresses, or both, as in the minds of most people the two professions were indivisible. Their life was a performance, London was their stage, the world was their audience, they were exotic, extraordinary and quite magnificent. We began in that theatrical world amid what Neil memorably calls the companionable fog of humanity. I asked him to tell me more about it. Victorian theatres and music hall were totally unlike anything that we can imagine today. There were, in 1870, 347 music halls in London, 50 major theatres, and probably another 100 or 200 establishments offering some kind of theatrical entertainment. And you didn't go and see a play as you do today. You go and see one play, or you might even see two plays. You went for an evening's entertainment. People would come, people would go. People would wander around. There would be bars, there would be drinking. The Royal Alhambra, London's largest music hall in 1870, accommodated 3,000 people in the seating area, in the auditorium. Then there was the canteen in the basement, which was basically one large brothel, as far as we can make out. And then there was the promenade, a vast circular promenade encircling the auditorium, where gay ladies, ladies of the night, fallen women and young men dressed in women's clothes or not dressed in women's clothes, all sought the attentions of gentlemen. So what was going on off stage was at least as important to the audience as what was going on on the stage. And from the book, it seems that sex was was on the minds of of many of the people who were there. Victorian theatres and music halls were very interesting because they were spaces where the rich could mingle with the poor on almost equal terms. People came together in theatres 
and the normal rules of society, the normal moral rules, the normal social rules were suspended. So it was a kind of suspension of reality. And of course, sex was a very large part of that. It was a place where men could meet women, where women could meet men. Women were sexually disempowered for the most part in the 19th century, but in theatres they could go and they could meet men on almost equal terms. It was also a place where sodomites, so young men, would flock. Again, the theatre has traditionally been tolerant and liberal. In the 16th century, Philip Stubbs, a Puritan writer, spoke about how the Ingalls and the Pathics would flock to the theatres to see terrible things on stage. And the theatre had always been a tolerant space for men who had sex with men. In the 1860s and 1870s, there was something called the burlesque craze, the burlesque mania, which was for plays which featured young men disguised as young women and young women disguised as young men, comedies of gender errors, uh, where there would be much confusion, lots of jokes about young men kissing young men and young women kissing young women, and then it would all shake down and everyone would end up happily ever after. So the theatres were a magnet for people like Fanny and Stella, young men who wanted to have sex with men, young men who liked to dress in drag, who wanted to have sex with men for money. The theatre drew them. They wanted to perform, they wanted to see these plays, and they wanted to find sexual partners or punters. So it's, no, it's not by coincidence, then, that we first encounter Fanny and Stella in a theatre, a space, as you've just described, where you can experiment with your identity, where you can be more outrageous than you could be on the street, and a place where you could, where you could meet, meet other men. Absolutely. It, it was a suspension of reality. Let's be clear, the lives of young men like Fanny and Stella were incredibly hard and incredibly dangerous. It hadn't even been 10 years since the death penalty for sodomy had been abolished to be replaced by sentences of 10 years to life. So they were living an extremely dangerous existence. Every time they went out, every time they had sex with another man, they risked imprisonment. So it was a very dangerous, difficult, tough life. They risked violence, they risked imprisonment, they risked life-threatening sexually transmitted diseases. To go to the theatre was to suspend reality, to suspend the harsh realities of their life and to enter into a gilded, mirrored, glittering, gaudy space where they could give way to their theatrical impulses, to their effeminate impulses, where they could dress up, where they could do make-believe. And yes, they haunted the theatres. We know that Mr John Reeve, the uh, manager of the Royal Alhambra Palace, complained to the police on several occasions about the painted and effeminate young men who thronged the Alhambra and caused chaos and upset his normal clients. For a writer, it must have been an incredible gift to have Fanny and Stella, because it's hard to imagine really more colourful and more sharply contrasting characters. 
They were incredibly colourful and incredibly contrasting, but I think there's a process as a writer that you have to go through to understand the true characters. Fanny and Stella exist in some photographs and we can see them in drag and out of drag and we can draw some conclusions from those photographs, from the physical remnants of them. But they also exist in legal terms. They were famous because they were arrested and tried for very, very serious crimes. So, and this is true of much of gay history, that, that we have to disinter personalities from the dead hand of the law, and it very often is the dead hand of the law. We have to somehow rescue those personalities. So that's quite a long process because the trial transcript is extremely long. It's probably a million words. And we somehow have to kind of reconstruct those personalities and dust off the legal dust that surrounds them and try and recreate them as they were. And they were very joyous. We do have some very interesting clues. We have some of Fanny's letters, which are very, very funny. And we have some of Stella's letters to her lover, Lord Arthur Clinton, a debt-ridden MP and son of a duke and a rather hopeless person altogether. And Stella's letters to Lord Arthur are very imperious, which suggests that Stella was not the easiest person to have a relationship with. Mind you, knowing what I know about Lord Arthur, I wouldn't touch him with a barge pole. You write uh, about the whole gamut of ways that Stella would sign off her letters and you can interpret the different sort of shade, the sort of nuances of her um, feelings when she wrote the letter from the the way she decided to sign it off. Uh, Yes, you can. Um, It becomes very evident when you read the letters and then you see the signature, what kind of mood Stella was in. If she was Stella, she was in a good mood. If she was in a very bad mood, she would sign it Ernest Bolton. Sometimes she wouldn't sign it at all. There'd just be an angry full stop, which meant that she was in a very bad mood. And poor Lord Arthur Clinton was constantly in trouble for doing something wrong, for not sending her money, for not turning up on time, for not doing this, for not doing that. Stella must have been an incredibly difficult person to have a relationship with. I don't think I could have coped. You talk, Neil, about really, in essence, reanimating these characters, dusting off the cobwebs of the, um, the, the legal transcripts. Was that a process that took time? Did you, did, was there a, a phase when you thought, yes, now, now these characters have come alive, um, that, that wasn't necessarily manifest at the beginning? I think all books are speculative, and one never knows where one is going to end up. I came to Fanny and Stella partly by accident, a little bit by design and possibly by fate. After I'd written my book on Oscar Wilde, uh, which was very successful, I was looking for a new biography to write. And one of the problems with contemporary biography is that most books, most biographies have already been written. There are very, very few undiscovered great characters to write about. My publisher suggested that I should do T.E. Lawrence, and I certainly did a lot of reading about Lawrence. But having tried to sort of read Seven Pillars of Wisdom for the 16th time and, you know, become comatose, I decided I couldn't really do Lawrence. Besides which, he'd been done, and he'd been done very, very thoroughly. 
So I was, I was at a little bit of a crossroads. I didn't know what to do. And I was thinking, shall I see if there's anything to be mined from Bloomsbury? I didn't know. I'd mentioned Fanny and Stella in my book on Oscar Wilde. And one morning in September, I woke up and they popped into my mind. And I thought to myself, I wonder if anyone has done a book on them. And I wonder if there's enough material to do a book on them. So I started looking. My friend Dee Dee Smith, who is the dedicatee of the book, said that I actually thought of this on what we subsequently discovered was the anniversary of Stella's death. So anyway, I started looking and I discovered that there was a trial transcript in the public record office. I discovered that there were depositions and I discovered that there were vast acres of uh, material in newspapers and other material lying around. So I started to assemble that material and I went every day for six months to the public record office to painfully transcribe the trial. And then once you've got the material in front of you, you start digesting it, you start processing it. And it did take some time to develop and understand their personalities and to somehow fit the narrative arc together, which is actually very difficult in a book of this sort because you have two ways of going. You can either write what we might punningly call a straight biography where I write a history with a sort of straight authorial voice, although that's rather difficult for me to do, or you seek to get into the characters and to somehow animate the book. And I found myself, I, I did try writing the dry, straight approach and found it utterly boring and dull. And I think in many ways, English biography, English nonfiction is in crisis because I think we've, we've done the sort of great men and women and we've done the notorious men and women uh, and we've written about them. And I think we wanted to do something fresh, something new, something that would take people in to Fanny and Stella's world, because it's a world that I knew something about, but not a great deal. I should know a great deal about it because I'm a gay man, but I didn't know a great deal about it. And so the more I read about it and the more I read the trial and the more I read about them, the more... I became excited by the world that they lived in. And I wanted to somehow recreate and con reconstruct that world. And I did that by choosing the different characters who come into the story and writing about the story from their perspective, from the perspective of, of um, Miss Anne Empson, the Dragon of Davis Street, the sort of fearsome landlady who crops up in the trial, who breathes fire from the perspective of Miss Martha Stacy, who ran a house of accommodation in Wakefield Street, which was basically a place where you could go for sex. And she ran a house of accommodation for young men who liked to dress as young women, which was probably unique in London. From the perspective of Jack Saul, who was a, a real male prostitute from Ireland, and also who was immortalized in a book called The Sins of the Cities of the Plain, uh, which was a fictionalised account of his life. So I wanted to somehow reconstruct it and to use the trial as well, because I thought the trial was historically very important. And that process took a very long time, and rather longer than I wanted it to do, because I'd come to that point where 
both Robert, my partner, and I were, were our parents were getting old and dying of, of dementia. So uh, there was an awful lot of trips to the Whittington Hospital Outpatients Department late at night. And I was going up and down to Manchester once or twice a week to see my father. So it took a very long time. Perhaps that was a good thing because Fanny and Stella did grow in my mind and I did feel that I'd got to the essence of them. The book is emphatically non-fiction, but a lot of people say that it reads like a novel. And that's because truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. I wanted the book to read well. I don't like reading books with endless footnotes, marsupial pouches of information that hasn't been pre-digested or analysed. I wanted the book to sparkle as Fanny and Stella themselves sparkled in the gaudy, glittering gaslight of theatres to shine and be joyful. The book subverts notions that we may have of what Victorian London was like, or Victorian society, indeed. And one of the ways in which I was surprised was how accepting, in fact, the family, maybe accepting is not quite the right word, but the families of both Fanny and Stella didn't simply banish them, cast them out, um, cut them off. They, they, were more, they were more accepting than I would have expected a, a Victorian families to be. That surprised me as well. Fanny's father, Judge Alexander Park, had not one but two gay sons. His, uh, Fanny's older brother, Harry Park, had already been in trouble with the police twice for crimes involving sex with men. He'd been blackmailed by an Italian boy, which was hushed up. Then he'd allegedly assaulted a police officer in Weymouth Mews, just off Oxford Street. It was obviously a setup, and he was blackmailed and then arrested and charged, and he fled. And Judge Alexander Park had basically paid him an allowance to live under an assumed name in Scotland. Obviously, uh, when Fanny was arrested, it nearly broke Judge Park's heart, but he stood by Fanny and he stood by Harry. Stella's parents, we don't know much about Stella's father, he's rather silent, but we know a great deal about Stella's mother, Mrs Mary Ann Bolton, who fussed and clucked and worried and fretted over her darling boy, who helped him with his theatrical career, who kept cuttings and photographs, who schemed to make a good marriage for Stella, first to Louis Hurt, a rather dull post office inspector, and then to Lord Arthur Clinton, because Mrs. Marianne Bolton was nothing if not a snob, and she loved the idea of Stella being married to Lord Arthur Clinton, and she loved the idea of being the mother, the mother-in-law of, a, of, of, of a, the son of a duke. So, yes, they were accepting. Of course, there's always a difference between public and received historical discourses and private family discourses. And I think that exists, exists today. As a gay man, the public discourse around homosexuality in my life has be often been very different from the private discourse, from the people I've met, the individuals I've met. Of course, sometimes you meet people who are extremely homophobic and extremely hostile. I've been queer bashed twice. But throughout most of my life, I've been very fortunate in that the people closest to me, my mother, 
my friends, have all been extremely tolerant of my sexuality. And I think this was the case in the 19th century. And yes, it is surprising and it does subvert our received notions. But beyond, you know, as you say, beyond the family discourse, it's very clear from the book that Victorian society at large and those in authority found them not just troubling or confusing, but a cause of deep threat and anxiety and challenge. And a lot of, a lot of the book is about, about how those forces come to bear down on, on Fanny and Stella. You have to remember that Victorian England, 19th century England, you know, it's a whole century and there were a huge number of changes and fluctuations. But the most compelling factor was that England was, by and large, a heavily Christian, Anglican, Protestant, intolerant, evangelical society. So there were huge biblical injunctions against homosexuality and huge legal injunctions. I mean, we can see the abolition of the death penalty for sodomy in 1862 as probably a great liberating moment. Uh, It might not seem like that today, but in 1862, it was probably the greatest legal victory that anybody could imagine. So England was a Christian society, a moral society, and it had a historic hatred of homosexuality in common with the rest of Europe and probably the rest of the world. So when Fanny and Stella came along, something strange was happening. Sodomy, buggery, sex between men had always existed. What changed in the 1860s was that a sexual identity had begun to emerge. There was sexual behaviour between men, but suddenly there was a sexual identity. And I think this is probably what upset society and which caused so much hatred and so much, so much anxiety, that there was a se- an emergent gay sexual identity. There's a parallel in 1967 when the Sexual Offences Bill was passed. Lord Annan, Noel Annan, who'd been very instrumental in getting that change to happen, said something like, I hope that homosexuals will be grateful for these changes and that they will comport themselves with dignity. Society has always wanted gay people to behave. It's wanted them to fit in. It's wanted them not to exist. But in the 20th century, it's wanted them to fit in. I remember when civil partnerships came in, there was a government minister, I can't remember who it was, on Radio 4 saying, it's wonderful, this is for all the uh, respectable gay people who want to get married and live normally. There was an irony, an irony in there somewhere. And I think that the emergent sexual identity of young men like Fanny and Stella, young men who were camp, and Fanny uses the word campish, it's the first use of the word that I can find in the English language, much earlier than the Oxford English Dictionary has it. It was the emergence of a sexual identity, a camp sexual identity, a distinct sexual identity that so threatened everybody and freaked everybody out. And that was really what I think the conspiracy against Fanny and Stella was designed to crush and suppress. It was the fifth column within, the enemy within, the enema within. It's noteworthy too that uh, Michel Foucault, who I read diligently said that 
sexual identity was invented in 1870. It was a it was a watershed year. That was the year, of course, that Fanny and Sella were arrested. Although Foucault doesn't mention them, the year before, the Medical Times and Gazette had written an article called "Medical Aberrations," uh, which listed various sexual deviances, um, including androgynism and sodomy. So things were moving. The word homosexual had been invented in 1867, I think, in Austria. The medical profession was beginning to flex its wings. It was beginning to start ascribing disease and pathologies to sexual aberrations. So lots of things were going on. But mostly, society was frightened that there was a force within it, which it had always known about, which it had always casually suppressed and put down. But now, something else was happening, an identity was happening, and that was deeply threatening, deeply threatening to a nascent empire. I mean, we weren't an empire in 1870, although we were an empire in all but name. It was deeply threatening to notions of masculinity, to notions of strength and all the rest of it. Sodomy was equated with effeminacy. And of course, in Fanny and Stella's case, they were effeminate. So it was a very, very threatening thing. To, to the extent that Fanny and Stella are transferred to Newgate Prison because it's felt that they would have some contagious influence on other prisoners if, they, if they're kept where they originally were held. The theme of contagion runs through the history of homosexuality in England. I mean, as far back as the 17th century in, in Sodom or the quintessence of debauchery by John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester, the play is a, a, a moral fable about what happens when sodomy becomes unbridled. Uh, we get disease, death, the crops fail. Babies are born with deformities and fiery demons rise up and pour foul smoke and brimstone over the land. So that's always been a theme that somehow or other sodomy is punished by divine retribution and that it is a contagion, that it will spread, that it's a disease. And like the great stink, like uh, the, the Victorian anxieties about sewage, they were worried about miasmas, they were worried about poisonous emanations that somehow would spread, and sodomy was a miasma, it was a poisonous emanation that could spread, infect people. The great issue around Fanny and Stella was not the fact that they had been sodomized. those charges were actually dropped, they were charged with conspiracy to commit sodomy. And if you read the indictment, which is very long, it becomes clear that clearly they had conspired with um, virtually every man they'd met to spread sodomy. That was the threat. That was the charge. That was what the state wanted to repress. It was this idea that the sodomy was a contagion. And unless we came down on it, unless we extirpated it, disinfected it, destroyed it by fire, by hanging, by any other sort of punishment, then it would spread. And once it started spreading, it would become rampant and unchecked and destroy everything. You know, in keeping with what you've said about this emergence of a, of a sexual identity, it seemed to me that, that the visibility of Fanny and Stella was really what made, well, it made, it made them impossible to ignore. Because um, previously, 
it was possible to, to deny that that homosexuality existed on an, on any large scale. It was it was it was possible to brush it under the carpet, wasn't it? And Fanny and Stella really challenged that and made it impossible to continue like that. I think that's true. I mean, there's a parallel story with the Mollies of London. The Mollies were a group of effeminate gay men who wore women's clothes, called each other by women's names, uh, very similar to Fanny and Stella. And there were Molly houses, and there were something like 20 Molly houses in the first quarter of the 18th century. And these were ruthlessly suppressed and put down, again, because of the visibility factor, because of the flaunting factor. Back to Lord Annan, you know, he hoped that gay men would not would comport themselves with dignity and not flaunt themselves so this is there is this idea of flaunting and display and fanny and stella were in the public realm they were in the theatres which were tolerant spaces but they were also on the streets they were in the burlington arcade they trolled up the burlington arcade and down the burlington arcade they were thrown out of the burlington arcade and they came back they were thrown out and they came back And this went on and on and on. And Fanny and Stella, and young men like them, because Fanny and Stella were representative. They were were symbolic victims. They were not uh, the only victims. Did flaunt their sexuality on the streets. And and, and in context, you know, there was something like 80,000 female prostitutes on the streets of London and not very much happened to them. You know, you could hardly walk down the Haymarket after dark or even before dark in the 1860s, 1870s and 1880s without seeing hundreds and hundreds of female prostitutes flaunting their wares. So it was this idea that they were flaunting themselves, that they were displaying themselves and in so displaying themselves, threatening the status quo. And I think that's what did for them. You've described them as symbolic victims, Neil, and I suppose they do have a tragicomic character, don't they? And sometimes the, the tragic side prevails and sometimes it's the comic. But I wondered in conclusion, do you, do you see them as heroic in some way? I think they were heroic and I think they were incredibly courageous. I mean, they were two feather-pated young men, 20 and 21, 20, 21 and 22 when they came to trial. They'd had very little experience of the wider world Fanny had studied rather desultorily law in Chelmsford and been more absent than present. Stella had done six months in the London and County Bank in Islington and given up and devoted herself to the theatre. So they were not particularly clever, brilliant, brave. They were not cut out for the role that they were forced to play. But when they were arrested and when they were forced to play it, they behaved with dignity and courage and verve. They could have run away. They were released on bail after the initial hearing at Bow Street. And there was eight months between that and the show trial in Westminster Hall before the Lord Chief Justice. They could have quietly disappeared. They could have done what Harry Park had done and just gone off, lived under an assumed name. Okay, their parents had put money up for bail and they would have forfeited that bail. But they could have done that. They didn't. They stayed. It was an act of bravery and courage to stay and to stand up and be who who they were. Neil McKenna, 
Fanny and Stella, the young men who shocked Victorian England, is out now in hardback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme, which will feature novelist Nadim Aslam talking about his new book, The Blind Man's Garden. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Just go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.